title of today's message is Worldview Matters. And we just watched a video that showed us John chapter 13, verses 21 through 36. When I talk about worldview, we're talking about everything that encompasses how we believe, what we believe, and how it actually works out in our life. And I, am, I came to this because I'm a little bit of a history buff. And let me define what I mean by history. History is simply the study of decisions. And ultimately, um, history is about digging into how decisions were made in the past and often about the mistakes that were made. And one of the historical areas that fascinates me the most is watching how 80 million people in the 1930s followed a madman into the bloodiest war that has ever been recorded in human history. Many of you have some distant memories of that war and its aftermath during your childhood. Of course, I'm talking about World War II, and the country I'm referring to that had the 80 million people was Germany. Think about it. 80 million people subscribed to the madness, subscribed to the racism and the fear-mongering of one small little man who was a failure at virtually everything in life except for demagoguery, and his name was Adolf Hitler. Not only did they let themselves get talked into going to war with the entire known world at that time, but many of them participated in acts of war and committed such human atrocities that have never been seen before in the modern world. It was so bad that after the war was over, they put many of the senior Nazi leadership on trial at Nuremberg, Germany, for their war crimes. And most of them used this criminal defense called superior orders. It became almost a, a mockery of what those soldiers just kept repeating over and over and over again. And the criminal defense that they tried to use was, I was simply following the orders of those officers that were appointed over me. When I took an oath of a, as a soldier, we had to swear that we would follow the orders of those appointed over us, and therefore I followed my orders. And so what they would keep saying in trial every time they were accused of a crime is, Biffer is Biffer, which means orders are orders. I had to obey those orders. And whenever I read something about people in the past, particularly when they make really bad decisions, I try to put myself in their shoes. Even in the Bible when people have made bad decisions, or in history, I try to put myself in their shoes and understand how they got to that point. What in their world made them go into this really bad place? And when I put myself in their shoes, and I, I try to come up with that same solution, I put myself into pre-war Germany and say, what caused these people to go there? Well, 1930s Germany, they were still reeling in defeat from World War I. The national pride had been severely, severely slapped around. They were in poverty. They were in economic depression because the previous war had bankrupted their country. Their morale was at an all-time low until that one man stood up from a crowd and said, let's make Germany great again. One of the ways he did it was by dividing the German people and putting all the blame for their condition on one group of people, the Jewish immigrants that were running much of the country. And we all know what happened from there. And you may ask yourself, well, what does this have to do with what we just watched on the video screen? Or what does this have to do with this Bible 
um, section that we're studying today. Well, there's a bit of wisdom that says that those who ignore the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat those mistakes into the future. You see, these German officers have subordinated their conscience into wrong belief. Even though most of them, most of them would have claimed to be Christians. Most of those German officers, if you would have asked them, they would have said, yeah, we're Christians, we go to church. But still, they put aside the basic teachings of Christianity and even human decency for the greater glory of the Third Reich. And I know that this is an extreme example, but I use it to highlight the importance of having a correct worldview that is solely based on God's Word. It is solely based on what we see in the Bible. Because having a wrong belief is deadly to us spiritually. In particular, having a wrong belief about who God is or who Jesus is or what their expectations of you can have eternal consequences. And here in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, we see two different reactions to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. The two reactions we see are because these two men's worldview affected their ability to see and ability to hear and ability to experience what Christ was trying to teach them in this time about loving one another. This first part, or this part of John chapter 13 has three basic divisions. First, we see Judas and his reaction to Jesus washing feet. Next, we see Jesus teaching and explaining why he did it. He did it as an object lesson to the entire gospel message that he has been teaching them for the last three years of how to love one another. And lastly, we see Peter in his misplaced zeal proclaiming his love for Jesus that he is even willing to die for him. And we see Jesus' reaction to that. And today we're going to look at the wrong ideas that Judas and Peter had about Jesus, had about his message, and most of all, had about his future kingdom. It's my hope that the Holy Spirit is going to use these examples to really search us and know us and point out any wrong ideas that we might have about God and his will for our life. So let's start with prayer. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you teach us the importance of having correct belief this morning. A belief that is not found in our own opinions. A belief that is not found in, in a political philosophy or a, a personal preference. But a belief that is founded strictly in who you are as shown through your word. Because any deviation from that can lead us down a very tragic path in life and in the life to come. So I ask, Father, that you help us to open up our hearts to hear your word this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want us to start with this thought this morning. We're in the upper room. Jesus was, is going through communion. He's going through this last time with his disciples. Up until this point, they have had three years of very intensive Bible training and theological training and just life training with Jesus. Can we all say that Jesus was the best teacher that has ever lived? So none of them had any excuse. It wasn't like he had 
this experience with all the other disciples and Judas was always left out. So he was without excuse. He had the same exact experience with Jesus that everybody else did. Yet both of these men, Peter, even though he was one of the closest to Jesus, and Judas, they all allowed an errant worldview to taint what Jesus had been telling them for these last three years and change it in their minds to something that would only benefit them. So let's take a look first at Judas and explore some of his life and what we think his motivations were for betraying Jesus and how his worldview affected him in such a way that it says that even Satan was able to enter him. So let's look at Judas. When we see a horrific event in the news, something like a mass shooting, what's one of the first questions people ask? Why? Why? Exactly. Why did this person commit such an act of violence against everyone else? What motivated this person to go into this place and shoot it up? What motivated this person and what twisted in this person's mind to go commit such an act of violence? I mean, I think we can agree that most healthy people don't want to kill each other. So when somebody falls that far outside of society's basic morality, we have an immense desire to know the reason behind it. Judas brings up this similar question. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? There's no indication that Jesus treated him unfairly. In fact, at this Last Supper, Judas was placed at the right hand of Jesus. That was the place of honor. Normally, Peter would have been there as a second in command. But Judas was placed in the place of honor. Jesus honored him for the last time. And yet Judas still went and betrayed him. When Judas said somebody was going to betray him, it says that disciples were puzzled as to who was do that. They all didn't just look at Judas and say, well, okay, Judas, time to go. They were all surprised when they found out it was him. So let's dig into Judas's background a little and see some of the reason why his worldview led him to the most famous betrayal in all of history. And the first thing I want to look at is his name. Judas is known by the surname Iscariot. Some people refer to that as his last name. Historians and theologians believe that the name Iscariot referred to the, na- the part of Israel that he was from. Some people believe that it may refer to him having red hair. So if you're a red-headed child in this um, congregation, then you may be descendant of Judas. Just kidding. Another possible um, theory that is out there, and it kind of makes sense to me, is that a translation of the surname Iscariot, when I was looking it up in the, uh, in the ancient languages, meant um, could mean literally of the scari. Now, not of the scary, it doesn't end with a Y, it ends with an I. In Israel, in that time that Jesus was alive, the scary were a very militant group and a semi-secret society whose primary mission was to overthrow the Roman government at all costs. They made the zealots look like peacekeepers, okay? These were the secret assassins. These were the people who are all behind the scenes. They would carry out political assassinations. They would do all kinds of things to get Rome out of their um, country, up to and including something that we would call a terrorist action today. 
To use a modern example that we're all familiar with, they saw themselves as freedom fighters like many people in Iraq and Afghanistan saw themselves when America invaded their country. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have done it. I'm just saying from their view, this is how they looked at themselves. These men and women were happy to strap a bomb on their bodies and kill our military personnel in defense of um, defending their belief system and their country. But because they targeted not only military personnel, they also targeted civilians. We rightly call them terrorists. And if they would have had explosives in the first century, I believe the Scaria would have had no problems blowing up markets to prove their point. They worked through that assassination, information, and intimidation. And the Scaria maintained a worldview that Israel was to be the one dominant superpower on earth. No matter how it, um, they had to get there because they were God's chosen people. Their view of Messiah was that he was going to be this great military leader that would not only restore Israel to superpower status, but would wipe out everybody else on the earth who would not go with that. So they were very, very militant, very, very violent, and very, very ready to do everything it took to get there. Judas was most likely a member of this group prior to becoming a disciple. Jesus had called him out of this. He probably still maintained some contact with many of them during his time of being a disciple of Jesus. Because of his contact with this group, Judas's worldview and his view of God was greatly affected by this. Even Jesus' teachings were filtered through this mindset that was, was formed in his heart by the scari. And we all know how that turned out in the end. John does give some editorial about why Ju Judas did what he did, is that John said he was a thief and he simply wanted a silver, some silver coins. And I think that would have been a small motivating factor. But as I said in the beginning of the message, I try to put myself in their shoes when, when I'm trying to just figure out why they did what they did. I think Judas was simply staying true to how he viewed the world because of this scary background. There are also some indications that Judas came from wealth. So 30 pieces of silver in his time would have been equivalent to about two to four months of salary. That's, that's a nice chunk of change, but if you think about it, say somebody offered you right now $15,000 to betray the most popular person in town right now. Let's, or the most popular person in the county, the most powerful person in the county. Would you do it? For $15,000, about a third of a month of a year's salary? But you still have to live here, right? I mean, how would you like to live in a small town knowing that everybody hates you? That's, that, that's why I don't think money was a big factor in Judas's life. I think it was a tertiary issue. What we see here... And, what we, and we see later what he thought about these 30 pieces of silver after Jesus died. Because what did Judas do with them? Threw them away. So he, I don't think it was the money. Judas' actions were motivated because he had a wrong idea of who Jesus was. And I think his frustration had been building for some time. He was waiting for Jesus to take control. He was waiting for Jesus to rise up. He was waiting for Jesus to speak out against Roman oppression, and he never did. Maybe his friends in the Scari movement were asking him and putting pressure on him to get Jesus to finally move 
and get these Romans thrown out of their country. And I think the final straw was Jesus humbling Himself and washing feet. This totally blew Judas's mind because no Messiah of Judas's expectation would ever do the lowest thing a slave could do. An observant Jew would rather go into Samaria, go into a Samaritan's house and eat ham than, than do something so low. Or to put it this way, if you're a Vikings fan, Jesus washing feet was like seeing a Bear or Vikings fan mock Aaron Rodgers. There are some, some things you just don't do. You can't abide those things, right? There are just some things that you cannot stand. The reasons Judas did what he did boils down to this. Judas may have been trying to push Jesus into his version of who the Messiah is. Or he simply had given up on Jesus and decided to take him out and make the Romans look responsible for it as a political move to get other people to rise up and revolt. Whatever the reason that Judas did what he did, they all came out of a wrong idea about God, about Jesus, and the kingdom. His worldview twisted Jesus' teaching into something of, in his image. Let's look at another example of wrong thinking in Peter's reaction to Jesus speaking about going to the cross. Now, Peter had many of the same views as Judas. Everybody during that time had the same view about Messiah, that he was going to be this great emperor that would rise up and throw Romans out of their country. He just didn't have it to the violent degree that Judas may have. And that's why when Jesus spoke about going to a cross in Matthew chapter 16, Peter immediately pulls Jesus to the side, and what did he do? He rebukes him, right? He says, Jesus, you're... Your job is to throw Romans out of Israel, and you can't do this if you're hanging on a Roman cross. Right? I mean, Jesus, you have to, I mean, you have to like think about what you're saying here. You're telling me that the very thing that we hate in our country is going to be the cause of your death? Are you, are you crazy? And you remember Jesus' reaction to Peter, rebuking him and saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's a pretty strong thing to say, isn't it? I mean, he. He went out and called one of his best friends his very worst enemy. It was because Jesus recognized how Satan was using Peter because it was the same temptation that Satan used against him in the wilderness. It's just wrapped a little bit differently. The package still had a nice pretty bowl on it, but it was just wrapped a little bit differently. You remember the temptation in the wilderness? He said, Satan had told Jesus, all you have to do, I'll give you all this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. You don't need to go to the cross. Just worship me. And this is essentially the same temptation that Peter was trying to, to tempt Jesus with. Now why was Peter open to letting the enemy twist his thinking this way? Because Peter saw himself as a future second in command under this Messiah. He was following Jesus for personal benefit not out necessarily out of love for him. And the difference between Ju Judas and Peter was this. Judas did it out of national pride and an overinflated sense, over sense of patriotism and a hatred of Rome. But Peter was doing it out of personal pride 
for what Jesus was going to do for him. That's why when Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come, Peter flies into the panic. Peter's thinking, Jesus, I, I've sacrificed my whole livelihood. I, I had a successful business before I went and followed you. And, and wait a minute, I, didn't even, I missed all my kids' birthdays and all my kids' soccer games and, and all these kind of things. I missed this for you for the last three years. I've, I've given all this up so I would be around and hope I would get into the ground floor of this new kingdom on earth you keep talking about. What do you mean you're going away? Now you're, I don't understand. You're talking about leaving this earth. And most importantly, Jesus, you're talking about leaving me behind. And it explains Peter's reaction and his words. Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll, I'll do anything you want. Whatever you think you need me to do to, in order that I get to stay with you, I'll do it. I'll die for you. And yet a few hours later, Jesus is denying, or Peter is denying Jesus to his face. What do Peter's motivations and actions teach us? They teach us that if you are not following Christ for the right reasons, you will not stand in the time of trouble. Let me say that again. If they teach, they, Peter's actions teach us that if you are not following Christ for the right reasons, you're not going to stand in the times of trouble, the times of persecution, the times of hardship that come upon us in life. And this is why your worldview needs to be based from what the Bible says. And not from our personal comfort, not from our personal preference, and not even our political leanings. It has to be based solely on the Word of God. There's a time of persecution coming on this earth. In our nation and throughout the Western world, we're already witnessing the great falling away that was predicted in the Scriptures. And it's hard for us to witness it, isn't it? For 242 years, Christianity has been the de facto religion practiced in America. We've called ourselves a Christian nation. Yet we are witnessing the fall of American Christianity. If you're a Bible-believing Christian who living out our faith in the way Jesus prescribed it, we are now the minority in this nation. And it's a hard, hard pill for us to swallow. But it's not a bad thing. You say, well, how can you say that our faith falling apart seems to be a bad thing? The faith isn't falling apart. The church is still triumphant, even if it's shrinking, because Jesus is coming back. God wants to give his son a bride who has made herself ready. Our spiritual health is not perfected in times of plenty and peace and wealth and prosperity. Our spiritual foundation are forged in the fires of persecution and even pain. Let me illustrate this a little. If you are going to go out and make a work of clay into a pot or a bowl, one of your first jobs is going to be to ensure the purity of that clay. We can't just go out in the backyard here, dig down a few feet until we hit clay, and then go and, and dig up some clay, toss it on a wheel, and try to form it. Why is that? It's going to have all kinds of impurities in it, right? I mean, we're going to have small pieces of rock and gravel in it, especially limestone is deadly to pottery. We're going to have roots from various kind of plants, maybe even an earthworm or two. 
You're going to have twigs all wrapped up in there. And all these different things that are in the clay, but are not the clay. Now the potter, if you're sitting there and you start trying to form this clay, you throw it on the wheel and it's spinning around at 400 RPM, you're going to have a heck of a time forming this clay because of all the junk that it has in it. I mean, imagine a twig hitting your hand at 400 RPM. That's, good. That's going to be kind of painful, and it's, not, it's just not going to work very well. But let's just say if you manage to, to make what you want out of the clay, let's say you're making a, a small bowl, and you finally get it shaped, and then you take it and you go throw it into the furnace and the kiln so it gets nice and hard. What do you think is going to happen when the cooking time is over and you open that door? You're just going to have all kinds of shards of, of pottery in there. You're not going to have a perfectly formed bowl because when you apply heat to an un, to clay that has not been made purified, it will not hold together in the fire. Let's bring it home to you and me. If, you don't allow, if we don't allow God to create within us a correct worldview and a correct view of who He is, who you are and what His plan is for your life, when the fire of persecution, hardship, or pain hits you, we will shatter because of our impurities. And the source of our greatest impurity is seeing God in our image and not in the image of Christ. And that's largely why we've lost an entire generation of kids to the world. Because we told them about a God of blessing and the first time persecution or trouble hit them as young adults, their spiritual lives fell apart. John 13 is all about Jesus showing us the right way and showing us the real nature of God. And even though we saw it in the video, let's read it. In John chapter 13, 34, he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, I've met a, a number of very colorful people in my life, and one of them was at our last church. This guy started attending prayer house about the same time we did, and for some reason he just connected with me better than most people because I had as much of a past as he did. And this guy was an on-fire soul winner for people that most of us wouldn't even want in our church, much less in our communities. This man came out of a rampant drug abuse and still had a heart for those in it. He would go to places to try to, to win people that most police wouldn't go into without a SWAT team. I remember one night I got a phone call after he had gotten rounded up when the police raided an abandoned building downtown that people were squatting and using drugs and since he was there and he was known to the police as a drug user they arrested him too. And I went to the police station to to go and see him and, and, and try to get him out of on jail and the police and the desk sergeant at the jail asked me a question he goes pastor why would you want this guy in your church i mean we all know him he's a piece of blippity blip why would you why would you want him in his church and i said you know this guy's been clean for almost two years he's a valued member of our church and the church isn't meant to be a social club for those who are successful it's meant to be a hospital for our for the sick I said, even if he was there using drugs, which I knew he wasn't, I would still be here to give him a hand back up out of the ditch and make sure he gets back on the path. I said, life isn't about the road you take. 
It's about where you end up. Every single one of us is going to hit a detour once in a while. Every single one of us is going to ignore God's GPS and try to take a shortcut. And it's up to the rest of us to gently restore them to the right path. And that is why Christ gives us this command. A new command I give you. Love one another. Love one another. You are to love one another the same way Christ has loved us. And this love is to be all-pervasive in our thinking, all-encompassing in our outreach and in the way we treat one another. I used this scripture last week, but it applies as much this week in Philippians chapter 2. It says, "...in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus." who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used of his own advantage. Let me say that again. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Being by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now close your eyes for a moment as I reread Jesus' command to us in, in John chapter 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, if you love one another. You can't love another person if in the back of your mind you're elevating yourself above them. You can't love another person if in the back of your mind you're thanking God that you're not a sinner like they are. You can't surely or truly show love to another person if you're only viewing God as being a God of blessing. You see, that was Judas's mindset. You can't embody the love that is central to the gospel message if you're using that message only to enrich yourself. And that was Peter's mindset. We need the mindset of Jesus. A new command I give you, love one another.